Yes, it's Anzac Day on Tuesday, a highly symbolic time in our culture. Time to remember people's commitment to a big cause, that of defending Australia, and of course increasingly other cultures' defenders also march. What of those veterans who won't be there? Because they've very sadly taken their own lives or they've self-harmed or they're simply too disturbed to acknowledge their time in the forces. A Royal Commission's underway, as you probably know, to examine why the rates of distress remain high. A fortnight ago, the Commissioner Nick Caldas publicly reminded people they had till October the 13th to make a submission. Now, we're learning quite a lot more, though, already about the particular subset of men especially who are most at risk, and it's a little bit surprising. I'll welcome Patrick Lindsay now to the program to discuss the complications of life off the battlefield as such. He's reported on military men and women for nearly three decades now, and his latest work just published is The Home Front. Patrick, welcome. G'day, Geraldine. How are you? Uh, Good, good. Um, now, there's a lot to cover in this issue, as you know, and your book includes a lot of history of veterans' post-war experiences going a long way back. I wonder if today we could wrench the focus back to some of the surprising findings about who's most at risk, which is emerging, because it's not necessarily what you think. If you read some of the reports for the Commission, it seems that length of service is terribly important. With an, I'm re- quoting now, with an increased likelihood of suicide in ex-serving men with less than one year of service. Mm. When compared with men who serve 10 years or more, medical discharge plays a significant role versus those discharged voluntarily. And non-commissioned officers two, twice the t- at risk of commissioned officers. So, you know, this I don't think listeners will be used I, to hearing that. Exactly. Does I it don't surprise think we realise it. Yes, it did. I, I was completely surprised. I started this before I did a film and this book, uh, a documentary in this book. And the, the whole thing just opened in front of me as I learnt more and more and more. I thought, like most Australians, we do a pretty good job looking after our veterans. We've, you know, it's mm-hmm. part of our whole heritage and we, we've, we care about our veterans. But the systems are just not fit for purpose. They've been there for 100 years, added on to like topsy and no logic, and now they're starting to really be found out. And we've found, for example, if you're a veteran under 30, then you have twice yes, the suicide rate of, a, of the average Australian. We lost 41 killed in action in 20 years in Afghanistan. We've lost at least 1,400 who've taken their own lives in that same period. Yes, and yet what really struck me um, was that, in fact, you know, the 325 certified suicides among people with at least one day of ADF service between 2001 and 15, Mm -hmm. 51% ex-serving at the time of their death, so it's this transition that is the critical thing. 28%, mind you, serving full-time, 21% in the reserves. Exactly. It just doesn't quite make sense. It seems to be, you know, one of the things I think a lot of people men and women join the forces because it gives them a very clear sense of purpose. And then if they leave and it's not their decision by, by mm. if, they're, if they're invalided out or they have medical problems or mental health issues, whatever it is, and then they're out, their sense of purpose and all the structures that were around them supporting them all disappear. And we don't have a good system. We're really good at creating our warriors, great soldiers, we have been always able to do that. We're really bad at turning our soldiers back into civilians. Yes. And there's the problem. They don't feel like they fit back into our community properly 
and there's no real structure. We're, we're trying to do it. They've brought in a joint transition authority and Nick Caldas, the Royal Commissioner, criticised the slowness of that operation in his interim report and said that it's really got to be something that's seriously looked at because all the bureaucracies and all the organisations we assume look after our veterans, like the Department of Veterans Affairs and like the RSL and things like that, have really failed to connect. And so, as a result, a lot of veterans are looking after themselves and they've set up their own ex-service organisation. 4,000 of them, 4,000 of them. <laughs> Can you believe that? And that's, that's a, when you think about it, there's a lot of logic in that. That's the sort of logic that a lot of our military, they go, this is hopeless, it's not working for it, I'll sort it out. So they start their own and, and yet... I mean, the, maybe that's not a bad thing, of it's, course. Well, it's highlighted the situation, hasn't it? It's, it's, it's thrown the spotlight back onto DVA, for example. And in the time I've been doing this research, they, they had 12,000 backlog of, of veterans seeking assistance when I first started doing this. That blew out to 60,000. It's, I think, around 40 the last time I was able to to catch up with it and they're trying to do something about it. But that's a massive failure and it's a very obvious one. But, you know, this is so tricky, isn't it? Like you have a full chapter on transition in in this, you know, your full book. Uh, and again, surprises for me anyway, it's not a lifetime career, the military anymore. The median length of service being seven years, seven years, I yeah. must say, <laughs> 10 years for sailors and air crew. So that whole idea of being totally absorbed within this big military culture and even, you know, augmented by Anzac Day, like maybe somehow or other we've got to reconfigure that. We do. I think that's true. Because you see, when you think about it, there's a certain logic. All of our fighting, all this, almost all our fighting in Afghanistan and Iraq was by special forces. Well, they're the elite. They're like the top athletes. You know, they, they have to be at that level all the time to be able to go out there and, and perform. You can't keep doing that for 20 or 30 years. Mm. That's why, you know, those figures have come down so that people... And, and they... But they were sent again and again and again. Some mm. of them had medical waivers, even though they had mental health issues, because they were so important and there was such a small pool of them. Well, you, you've got to expect that's going to end up with problems. And the traumas started to really have a big impact. There were two big statements from your interviewees that quite struck me among the many. The military trainer who always said to those he was teaching, what's your plan B? Yeah. Now, that was, again, very unromantic, you know, very exactly. pragmatic. Exactly what a decent trainer should say to anyone. And by contrast, the other poignant statement that you quoted from one man saying, I'm not enough of a veteran. Yes, that's a sad one. (laughs) Both quite revealing statements, I think. Again, possibly over-sentimentalising the, you know, this whole warrior notion. That's part of it. That's part of... uh Underlying a lot of our problems is the warrior notion, right? You got guys like that first one, Harry Moffat, a really a remarkable man, SAS, still works with the SAS. He's the guy that was talking about your plan B. Because as he said, you could walk out the back training and blow a hand off in training, let alone going away and fighting in a in a conflict. And so they are prepared for that in many, many ways. But the other people in our military often find, you know, that they're sidelined. 
and and they're the ones that say to themselves, you know, I put my hand up to, and I put myself in harm's way for Australia, but I didn't feel like I was supported. Well, that's the little battler notion, isn't it? I mean, yeah. I suppose, I mean, getting back, you know, in, in our last couple of minutes, getting back to the dilemmas for the big institutions, the, the, the ADF itself, the Department of Veteran Affairs, and even the RSL. Yep. Um, if the real people at risk are people who have only just been there, possibly, and the, the army has said, no, you're not really fit, it's sort of like a social work um, role, isn't it? And they might say, the big institutions say, well, look, really, that, that is far outside our remit. Are you saying they have to rethink all that? I think someone does. I, I don't argue that the, it's, it's going to be very difficult for the military to look after the, the people who are fit to fight and at the same time look after the people who, who are, are not, not fit, fit to fight. fight. Right, so I think there's got to be a separation there. That seems logical. But we always thought it would be the Department of Veterans Affairs or an associated organisation with them. And certainly the RSL is the advocacy body. But if you look at the situation, there are something like 85,000 men and women who are qualified to be returned service members of the RSL, proper sub-branch members. And out of 85,000, maybe 1,500 have joined a sub-branch. There's this massive disconnect because the modern veteran doesn't see the RSL as representing them. And the RSL's got to do something about that. The average age of the RSL members is getting up towards 80. Mm. And I love that organisation. I think it's a wonderful, it's like the surf life-saving movement. It's a part of our fabric of our society. But if it doesn't do something and soon... It's on the precipice. You know, if they don't hand that baton on to the new generation, they'll die on the vine. Well, maybe they're... And and women, of course, you also... You know, women have... Actually, women's uh, results are not as bad as the men's in these mental health issues, I must say. The women... I think think you'll find a lot of those women are are already self-selecting. You know, they're the the toughest of the tough anyway that join into the military and maybe that's... that shows mm. that up too. But they're great, always have been great adapters. Mm. So they're probably looking at a different way. The men are involved in that warrior thing. Well, Patrick, uh, thank you very much indeed for bringing our attention to this. There's a lot more in your book, but I just thought it was good to focus on, on the, mm. you know, that subset. Uh, congratulations. Thank you, Joe. Patrick Lindsay, The Home Front, The Never-Ending War Within Our Veterans. It's an Affirm Press publication. And he's also uh, founding chair of the Kokoda Track Foundation. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.